Welcome to the Emmanuel Message Podcast. In this message, our friend and guest speaker, Ben Segabar, is teaching through Matthew 28 on how to make disciples. Enjoy the message. Thank you so much, Emmanuel. It's so good for me to be here with you guys. Uh, my family loves coming out to Kenosha. We always look forward to this uh, opportunity, and we kind of come out this time of year uh, every year. And so it's so fun for us. This year, I think it was last year maybe, uh, it snowed when we were out here. And this year, no snow. No snow. So I'm taking it. I love it. Plus, with Daylight Savings Time, I, wanna, I just kind of want to take a, a, an unofficial poll. How many people actually got an extra hour of sleep? It was like 10 of you. How many just scrolled on your phone for that extra hour laying in bed? And you didn't get any extra sleep. Man, I, I actually went to sleep. My wife helped me with my discipline. I went to sleep. I'm, I'm really excited, too, to be following up after Greg Steer. I heard and watched the message last week. And what an awesome opportunity that you guys followed through with, sharing your faith with other people, going out into the community and just letting people know who you are and what this Lord Jesus Christ is all about. The gospel advancing movement, as Greg Steer was talking about, what it means to be an unlikely fighter. And he used this phrase that I'm going to actually kind of piggy tail off of today. And the phrase that he used was, God loves to use the unlikely to accomplish the impossible. God loves to use the unlikely to accomplish the impossible. Today where we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, we're going to be in a really kind of common, familiar text for some of you guys that uh, are Christians have been walking with the Lord for a long time in Matthew 28. And you can turn there now if you like. We'll get there in just a minute. The context is for the Great Commission. This is when Jesus Christ commissions his disciples to go out into the world and make disciples. And I want to give a little context to this. Uh, where he is talking is in this region of Galilee. And we're just going to kind of jump right in. This small region in the world called Galilee. It's a small area where Jesus spent much of his life and ministry. If you're like me, any time that you read something, a region or a town name or something like that uh, in the scripture, it's like, I don't really know where that is, Galilee. I don't really know anything about it. And you kind of skip it. But it's not good to always skip those sections because what it helps us to, rem uh, to remind us is that these are real places, real people, real context, real place and time. This isn't just some fictitious storybook land. This is a real place. Jesus' was, ministry was really centrally located in this area of Galilee, north of Jerusalem, between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. Oftentimes we've heard Jesus referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe we'll hear that around the Christmas time of year. Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth is a town located in Galilee. This is hometown area. If you were to go to Galilee in that period of time and walk around and talk about the man Jesus, people would know who you were talking about. Perhaps even before his fame had spread throughout the ancient land. You're like, oh yeah, Jesus, we've heard of him, we know him, the carpenter's son, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Galilee. And I want you to pay close attention, when you go through the book of Matthew, you'll, you'll notice Galilee is mentioned over and over and over again because it was where he was at. It was where he spent so much time. Jesus said even before his death that at his resurrection, he would be found in Galilee. He said it to an angel the angel said it to the people, right? If you, if you think about Easter and the resurrection and the ladies come to the tomb and they come walking up and, they, and the angel says, hey, you're looking for Jesus. He's not here. He's risen just like he said. You will find him in Galilee. Why all this talk about Galilee? 
We're getting a context to Matthew chapter 28. We're getting a context to the Great Commission. Paul, the Apostle Paul, helps us kind of frame this even more in 1 Corinthians 15.5. 1 Corinthians 15.5 says, Paul says, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Verse 6, he says, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. He's talking about Jesus after the resurrection in the area of Galilee, appearing to all these people, first to some of the uh, disciples, and then to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, Paul says, but some have fallen asleep. If you're not familiar with Bible language, you think, some have fallen asleep. Like, what's, what's up with that? It's because early New Testament Christians believed so powerful in resurrection that God would bring us from death to life, that we would live forever with him, just like we believe today. They would just call it sleep. Those of you who have lost a loved one unto death, that brings hope, doesn't it? That they would have everlasting life, that they would be considered asleep by the New Testament believers. Again, to this context, when we read this familiar text that we're going to get into, I want you to think about this region that was so familiar to Jesus and so familiar to this over 500 people that are going to be standing there listening to what Jesus has to say. The fact that this is the resurrected Jesus Christ. Oftentimes we think of Jesus humble, meek, and mild, right? This is the resurrected Jesus. This is his glorified body in this remote area where he appears. Let's read in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Matthew 28 says this. The 11 disciples, because Judas had already committed suicide at this point, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. Remember, he said, that's where you'll find me after the resurrection. Verse 17, then they saw him. When they saw him, they worshiped. But some doubted. Jesus came near to them and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Like I said, for some of us, it may be familiar. I think for me, it always helps to have a little bit of context. And here's the resurrected Jesus Christ talking to these people on the mountainside, these people who had known him maybe from his youth. Our first point today is this, some worship, some doubt. Some worship, some doubt, from verse 17. There's some contention whether it was one of the 11 disciples maybe that had doubt, and we don't really know. But what we do know is clear is that there were doubters there on that remote mountainside in this place that we have no familiarity with, Galilee, that we could find on a map today if we wanted to. But of course, us as Americans, we don't know much about it. Have you ever thought in your life, if you could just see Jesus face to face, it would help your life so much. Maybe you have questions for Jesus and you would say, man, if I could just see him, if I could just talk to him for a minute, it would kind of settle everything up for me. 
And I wouldn't have any more doubts. And it would all be resolute and completed. Can I challenge you? Not necessarily. Here's the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ on a mountainside and 500 people looking at him. Some worshiped, some doubt. I want to talk for a moment about doubt. Some of you are so afraid of your doubt. It's like this boogeyman in the closet, this shadow that follows you around, and you're so afraid of your doubt. Mark 9 recounts uh, a story, and this uh, gentleman and his son, his boy was possessed by an evil spirit. And he goes to Jesus, and he's talking to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, if, if you can do something about this, could you just do it? My boy that's getting thrown into the fire and thrown around by this evil demonic presence. Jesus, if you can do something, can you do it? Do you remember what Jesus says? Jesus says, if I can. I love that. If, if I can. But think about what the man responds. This is in Mark 9. He says, Jesus says, if I can, all things are possible to those who believe. He says, immediately the boy's father said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. He's looking at Jesus and asking Jesus to do a miracle. If you can do something, Jesus, would you do it? And Jesus reminds him who he is. If I can, all things are possible for those who believe. And he says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. We're so shy about our doubt. This man took his unbelief to Jesus Christ. And that's exactly where he should take it. I would encourage you, if you have doubt in your life, don't hide it. I want you to take it to the Lord Jesus Christ, just as this man did. Say, Lord Jesus, I have doubts. Lord Jesus, I have questions. Many of us have these questions, and I think one of the biggest tragedies in life is when people have questions about their faith that they don't ask, and they don't pursue. They don't try to get to the bottom of it. They don't take it before the Lord regularly. They let it haunt them like a boogeyman. And eventually they say things like, well, I don't believe because I have a lot of questions. You say, really, what questions? And they're like, well, I guess I don't even really remember anymore. Take your questions to Jesus. Is he God or is he not? These unknown, unlikely, unfamous, common people on the mountainside. Some worshipped, some doubted. What about those who worshipped? Why worship? Can you imagine if you were there? I want to take you guys just a time machine back. Imagine yourself standing on that mountainside and the resurrected Jesus Christ, the one that you saw crucified, is standing there in a glorified body and he starts to speak. For those of us who believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, what a worship event. For all they had seen him do, for all the miracles and all the healings, for all the uprising in the culture and the time frame, all the expectations, the met expectations and the unmet expectations, and the crowds, the ancient promise of a redeemer who would come, of a Messiah, of a friend to these Jewish people, how much it meant to them to see Jesus Christ resurrected, standing before them. This is him. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is real. This isn't a fairy tale. This is what it was. You could see him. You could touch him. Resurrection is no longer a theory. It's a fact. The glory of Jesus Christ. Oh, the drama on the mountainside. Amen, church? 
The drama on this mountainside, the questions, the doubts, the praise, the victory, the worship. What a wonderful text the Lord Jesus has given us and the comfort in the scripture. I know full well when confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, some worship and some doubt. Those are really your only two responses to seeing Jesus Christ. And I'm put off by neither. The reality is God will sort it out, amen? He will sort it out. We don't have to worry about that. And the Bible is more than words on a page. It's real. What else, what else happened in our text for today? Matthew 28, 17. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Verse 18. Jesus came here. And he said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Did he only come near to the believing? <laughs> no. He came near to the unbelieving as well, didn't he? He drew near the unbelieving crowd. He drew near the believing crowd. Can I encourage you this morning with the reality that even an unbeliever, Jesus Christ, has the audacity to draw near to? If we would only look to him, I love the idea and the thought of just standing on that mountainside and Jesus Christ drawing near the bewildered crowd, some worshiping and some doubting and the drama on the mountainside. And what does he say to this crowd? He says, and remember, this is some of the last words, right, that we have from Jesus Christ. Probably important. And he appears just like he said he would. He appeared just like the angels said that he would. And he went right where he said he would be in Galilee. And what does he say? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is our second point for today. Jesus holds all authority. All authority. What does the Bible tell us about the authority of God? If you were to turn through the pages of your Bible and go all the way back, you would find the authority of this God who created the heavens and the earth a God who made something out of nothing, a God who drew near to a people who didn't draw near to him. You'll find it all through the pages of your scriptures, right? Just in the New Testament, it's so interesting to me. Some of the claims of Jesus' authority, he's sitting on, the disciples are in this boat out on a stormy sea, right? And it's getting tossed all around, the boat's getting tossed. They say, Jesus, they wake him up because he's sleeping. Help us, we are dying out here. Jesus just says, peace, be still. And immediately it's calm, right? Remember the story? Do you remember what the disciples said after that? They whispered amongst themselves, who is this that the wind and the sea obey his voice? They were coming to the realization that Jesus Christ holds all authority. There is nothing outside of his grasp. We know this as his people. There was a time when he was teaching in the synagogues. And you had the religious leaders, they had studied their whole lives, committed themselves to studying the scripture, right? They had religious authority. They were the educated. And here comes Jesus, the carpenter's son. And as he teaches, they start murmuring amongst themselves. And you remember what they say? He's teaching, not like other teachers, but as one with authority. 
Jesus Christ holds all authority. And the resurrected Jesus Christ that has power over death wants these bewildered people to know, hey, in case you haven't realized it yet, I hold all authority. What about the unseen realm? I have all the authority there. What about the seen realm? All authority here as well. We live in a time of increasing dismantling of authority. And it's, it's just wild to me when we consider even the angels obey his voice, the demons obey his voice. Satan has to ask permission. If you remember in the book of Job, Satan has to petition God. Can I do these things? Jesus holds all authority, and we live in a time of increasing dismantling of authority. We don't want anyone over us. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. There's so much corruption in the world, it's understandable why we would question authority. Remember when I was in high school, this kid had this sweet Mustang, super fast car. It was a built motor, not like one of the slow ones, you know. Question authority. He had that a bumper sticker on the license plate. It was actually the only car that I was in that could do a wheelie. He'd, he'd launch that sucker and it perfect bumper sticker for that car, right? Question authority. But so much corruption, it's understandable that people would want to question authority. But we know no authority is a bad idea, isn't it? When everyone is a law unto themselves, chaos ensues, doesn't it? Might equals right, and the strong survive, and people get pummeled, and it's terrible. We don't like authority, but we need authority. We need to give authority to the one who is worthy, right? We need to give authority to one who knows justice perfectly well. We need to give authority to the one who cares for the downcast and the weak. We need to give authority to the one who understands our plight and where we are in this life and what we go through, one who's walked this life yet without sin. We need to give authority to the one who stands above all power structures and doesn't have to worry about the other piddly laws and rules that may or may not be unjust. We need one who's over it, one who judges rightly, one who judges swiftly, one who is subject to none. This is the claim of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord. He says, all authority has been given unto me. Jesus holds all authority right now. Friends, he is allowing a great many things in this world that are unrighteous and wrong. He will by all means judge. This is the God that we know. In great grace and mercy, he is quick to redeem any who would come to him in repentance and faith. But he hates sin more than you do. That's to be sure. And he has more grace than you do. It's so good that he holds authority. In this resurrected state, we get a glimpse of the triumphant Christ, the one who is in all things victorious. He is in control, and on the faint mountainside, the glorious Jesus makes known to the crowd that he is in all authority. Everything has been given unto him. It's a good kind of question to ask, kind of a rhetorical question. In your life, who tells you what to do? Who tells you what to do? You might say, Ben, there's like 
lots of people who tell me what to do. Okay, well, well, who do you actually listen to when they tell you what to do? You know, if you're, if you're a married uh, man or woman, then you know, well, my, my spouse has things that they would like me to do, and so they often tell me what to do. But again, we make judgment calls, don't we? We say, well, I, yeah, yeah, but I know them, and they're kind of messed up. I've, like, married for a couple of years. They're not in all authority, and they haven't done all things well, and so I kind of know some other things, so I don't necessarily listen to them as they would like me to. I know their shortcomings, and who are they to tell me what to do? Maybe you have a boss, and you go to work, and you think, you know, the boss tells you what to do, and maybe you oblige to the things they want you to do at work, but outside of work, you're like, dude, you have no authority here, right? I get to do what I want to do. Maybe you don't even listen to them at work, depending on your boss situation. So everybody's like working from home. They're like, dude, no way telling me what to do. Isn't it funny how many people claim authority over our lives and where we find ourselves in the pecking order with politicians and our question of following the process? Do we believe the process? Do we believe that they have the authority that's been given them? Teachers and professors claiming wisdom over us as authority. Doctors claiming objective truths, but yet disagreeing with one another. And we'd say they are to be the authority in our lives, and we don't know what to do. Police charged to maintain order. And now in some mysterious way, unsupported by the rule of law that they uphold. They're authorities. Judges with verdicts passed, and then judges undoing other judges' verdicts. They are authorities. And we think as those who are under authority that we should submit to this authority as the Lord would call us to, but we don't know what to do. So many ruling bodies of Congress and Senate and city councils and OSHA and all these structures and authorities, all claiming authority over us. As Christians in this sanctuary this morning, and those of you online, the Christian does not readily obey all authorities. Certainly not because of their authority, Instead, the Christian has recognized one chief authority over them all. Amen? And it is because of what he says that we would subject ourselves to any governing ruling authorities, like it says in Romans 13. And we would be docile and obligatory to those who are upholding the law of the righteous one, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and we would follow because he has said so. Jesus Christ holds all authority and we give him titles that we would give to no one else. Titles like Lord and Master. You probably don't have many people in your life that you call Master. It's because Jesus stands up above all else I was talking with uh, a pastor some time ago, and, and you know, as pastors, we get together and try to encourage each other, and we see things in the world, and we see things in our own homes and communities. This pastor was really burdened because he had been talking with a member of his congregation, and the person was in open sin. The pastor was just talking with him, and this is a pastor in my life, and he was just talking about the sin situation, how it was affecting the church, how the person wasn't repentant, and they were just carrying on. And, you know, we're tempted to hear of situations like that and think, oh, this, like, righteous, self-righteous pastor, and everybody messes up. The pastor, we were talking on the phone, 
And the pastor just said to me, oh, how this must grieve the master. Our sin grieves the master. It's not about whose opinion is right and who does this. It's about the Lord's opinion and what he says. He loves us with his whole heart. And he rules justly. We are under authority of the one who is in authority. We are subject to him. Matthew 28, 17, as we continue, when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Our third point, a command from the master, make disciples. This is where it starts to get really familiar, right? Make disciples. So often I've looked at this passage and all I've heard and so much of my main focus has been in this uh, word go. And certainly we are to go, right? So many of you guys went and you, you went and you shared the gospel and that is so good. So rare for our community in this day and age. Missionaries go, church plants go, but the emphasis is not on the going. Actually, in this text, the emphasis is in the making. It's on the making. Make disciples is the imperative command. Imperative sentences use an imperative to issue a command. So this is his imperative command, to make disciples. Imperative commands tell people what to do. And the master comes down. He says, all authority has been given unto me. And now he's telling us what to do. And he says, make disciples. Make disciples. How? Well, it's in the sentence. It's in the structure. It says, by going, by baptizing, by teaching. These are all, if you're a nerd, you know, kind of like an English grammar nerd, these are participles describing the aspects of making disciples. Jesus, but how are we to make disciples? What does it look like? Well, by going, by baptizing. Pastor Andy mentioned that even this morning. And by teaching. That's how you make disciples. We might think easier said than done, but at least it's been said and at least it's been shown to us, this is the command of the master. He's not asking, hey, this bewildered crowd of nobodies, believers and unbelievers, and he makes his claim of authority, and then he says, hey, I know nobody knows your name, but you are the ones I have chosen to go and to make disciples. That's his command. It's a personal application for us. Jesus is telling us to do it. The glorious, victorious, all authority, Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, has given an imperative command to the unknown, unimpressive crowd. What do you think those disciples thought of that? <laughs> you know, you think of it as this awe-inspiring situation. It's like Jesus like glowing or something, and he's hovering, and he's like, ooh. And then he looks at the crowd, and he says, go make disciples like Whoa. I imagine the conversations they had after that like dude what are, how is this going to work and uh, me and you and dude I know you 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 you're terrible you got a reputation right like 
but we know Jesus too. And he wasn't messing around. All we can say about this early crowd is that we're here today because they took the command seriously. We know that for sure. We'll make just a brief kind of statement about my opinion on an assessment of the church in America. I think the church in America in some ways is in a bad spot when it comes to making disciples. We're not largely concerned with making disciples, it's my opinion. The church in America concerned with so many other things. We have a lot of concerns, don't we? A lot troubles us. We take our time doing a lot of things, don't we? But the command of the master falls on deaf ears, largely, in America. Churches and Christians find it easier to construct other measures of our success than to look at the blatant command of the master. Well, we're good at this and we're good at that, but are we making disciples? So many in America have so much things going on in their life, so many loose strings to their faith, so many doubts. We would say, Lord, how is it that I can make a disciple with the loose faith that I have? I can barely make it through the day, Lord. Right? Some people struggling so terribly, they'd say, God, am I to make disciples of me? How am I to go into this world and to tell other people as I go, everywhere I go, about you? Replicating this weak faith into someone else seems silly, Lord. Yet that's the command. I look and I just get grieved because I think, how did the bar get lowered so far for disciples to simply ask the question, will I go to church or not? And this isn't even a COVID question. It's not like an indictment against, it's just like, dude, way before COVID, that was the question, right? Should I get out of bed this morning and go to church or not? It's like, dude, that's not even the question. It's not even the question. The question is, is your life his? Have you given him all authority in your life? Have you recognized who he is? Are you worshiping him? If so, make disciples. We live in an era where the question is being raised over and over again. I've talked with others about it. Should we even evangelize? Is evangelism wrong? That's a question that I've heard before asked very many times. This is, do, the question goes like this. Do we have the right to speak into other cultures and nations the gospel of Jesus Christ? The question is, is evangelism oppressive to these cultures? We would say no. Almost half of millennials believe it is wrong to share your faith with someone of a different faith. That if they have a stated faith, you'd say, oh, no, 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 they've kind of already made their choice. I would say, dude, they are in peril. They're in a scary spot. How much authority does Jesus have? All authority. So my question would be, does he have authority in your workplace? I've talked with so many people. Oh, oh, no, you don't understand. I can't talk about God at work. It's like, dude, I'm not asking you to be a belligerent jerk. I'm not asking for that. Here's the question. Does Jesus have authority in your workplace? Yes. Your workplace is his. How about in the school? 
probably can't talk about Jesus at school. Don't be a jerk. But you can be a Christian. You can subject yourself to his authority, rule, and reign. And by discernment of the Holy Spirit, when you see that person in peril and grief and tragedy and trauma, you can offer hope. Why? Jesus holds authority there. It grieves my soul that people have been, you don't understand, it's like, dude, I've worked in the secular workplace. I've heard the rules. I've just chosen a different authority. How about in China? How about in Brazil? Does Jesus have authority there? How about in North Korea? How about in India? How about in Russia? Does Jesus hold authority there? The nations are his. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations. The question among men, should we preach to this generation? Is it, is it you know, stepping on their toes? Does it hurt their feelings? Dude, they're dying. And I can tell you now, you take all the polls you want. People are not happy. We could tell them the truth of the gospel, that this is a fallen world. Jesus acknowledges sin. He acknowledges hardship and heartache. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And we must share the way, the truth, and the life with all those around us. Jesus absolutely holds authority there. Wherever you find yourself, whether you are one who's commissioned to go or whether you just as you go and everywhere you go. And here's kind of a point that was very, a huge epiphany to me. And this is really the reason partly that I wanted to bring this message to Kenosha today. You understand that the world is making disciples too, right? This just, this was, you know, every once in a while you get those big aha moments. We were studying discipleship and how do you make disciples and oh, it's this big, difficult, complex thing. And I'm thinking about it and I'm praying about it. And it just dawns on me, you know, the word disciple means follower, basically, right? And I thought, it sounds like such a churchy word, disciples. And I realized, dude, this is, these are the words that the world uses today, unashamedly. Every single person on social media, this isn't a huge indictment on social media, but let's just be honest with each other, okay? Every single person on social media chooses who to follow. So the question would be like, how many people are you following? 100, 300, 2,000. Okay, so you're following 2,000 people online. And into your streams of information, there's things that they're wanting you to know, right? And so you're, you're, you're reading their content. They are, in their bios, so oftentimes described as influencers. So you're like, okay, so you're, you're following influencers, which I think is just so interesting to me. So many people are like, I'm not influenced by social media. But yet TikTok has all these challenges, and what happens? People do it. People who never thought of doing that thing before are now following the influencers and they're doing what they're told to do. Social media doesn't influence me. It's like, dude, you're following a self-proclaimed influencer. It's like, and what are they doing? They're creating content. That's what they do, right? That's like what they say they do. This isn't like, oh, like some secret, oh, they're creating content. No, that's what they tell you they're doing. So they're creating content for you to observe and be influenced by as you follow them. 
And what do they want? They want engagement. If you never did anything that they told you to do, they would have seen themselves as failing. They'd say, no, we want you to engage our content. We want you to do what we're asking you to do. And the church of Jesus Christ comes along and we say, hey, we know this man who resurrected from death. He claims all authority. He's asking us to follow him. He says that he is a content creator, mainly the contents of everything we've ever seen. Right? And it's kind of like, oh, you're a bigot and a tyrant, and like you shouldn't follow this man. It's like, dude, we're all following influencers. The, disciple, the discipleship program of the world is extremely invasive, and it's successful. There's over 272 million smartphone users in America, just in America. And we know we're all those people. Americans spend an average screen time of four to six hours a day on their phone that's not work-related, just statistically, four to six hours a day. Guys, that's a part-time job. So we're all spending as much time on our phones that it would be like we had a part-time job following influencers that are creating content that we're supposed to engage with. It's like, man, what's the discipleship plan that Christians are going to create to compete with this? What discipleship plan are the Christians going to do? I've got to have more than four to six hours a day, every day, it's so like Pastor Tom's going to come up with this discipleship program, and he's going to come, and he's like, guys, I got a, an idea. We're going to beat the world's discipleship program. We're going to do eight hours a day every day here at the church. Tom's like, I'm, I'm already on it. <laughs> I hope you guys see this as kind of like a problem. It's like, uh-oh. People are like, I just don't believe in the Bible anymore. I just don't believe in that. Why? I don't know. It just seems outdated, Whatever. They've been in the discipleship program of the world and they've finally succumbed. It's like, oh, the four to six hours a day, it, it wore you out, huh? How much were you in the Bible? How much were you praying? Just your regular disciplines. Who's the authority? The influencer that I follow. He's the authority. She's the authority. This is bad news, Christian friends. In the pandemic, phone time went up. Bible time online went down, statistically. How will you be discipled? That's the question. And then how will you disciple? That's the command of the master. It's not like, well, maybe I'll disciple someone else. Maybe I'll do it. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I'm going to encourage you to pray and seek and look at the people around you and pay attention to how you live. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I'm going to encourage you to look through the scriptures, Matthew 4.19. Jesus says, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. I will lead you in this, Jesus says. The high priestly prayer in John 17, this isn't up there for you to see, but John 17, 18, he says, Jesus is praying to the Father. John 17 is amazing, like newsflash. You should write that one down. Just read it on your own. You get this front seat to Jesus talking to the Father. I wonder what Jesus prayed. There's a whole chapter. This is what Jesus prayed. And he gets to this point. He says, Lord, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Jesus is like, guys, I already sent, I'm sending all you out to live and to make disciples. 
We love to argue about the obscure, unclear issues in the Bible. So often the very clear commandments are the ones that we choose to ignore. It's like, oh, I don't know about this and I don't know about this. How about the resurrected Lord saying, make disciples? The question is, well, I don't do that very well. I'd like to use some other form of measurement to see how I'm doing in my Christian faith. Some worship, some doubt. And Jesus holds all authority. A command from the master, make disciples. Number four, his presence, our comfort. His presence, our comfort. Jesus says in verse 20, and remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The question might be like this, Ben, I'm not very good at this Christian thing. I don't do it right. I don't know a whole lot about the Bible. And how would I ever make disciples? I don't know what to do. Jesus says, I'll be with you. He's like, dude, you don't have to worry. Don't worry about it. I will be with you everywhere you go. Routinely, God's promise to the prophets and the saints was his very presence. When you think about it, Adam enjoyed God's presence every day in the garden before the fall. You say, Ben, but that's not enough. It sounds like a trite, you know, consolation. Well, gee, God will be with you as you go. It's, it's not trite. Because if he holds all authority, then he can use you to do something for his kingdom work. Adam enjoyed the presence of God every day in the garden before the fall. Enoch walked with God, it says. Noah walked with God. Abraham, God said to him, I will be a shield to you. Jacob said, I am with you in this place, God said to him. I am with you in this place. Joseph was sold into slavery. He was in Potiphar's house. And God was with him in prison. God was with him there. God told Moses to go and talk to all the Israel, you know, the Pharaoh and Egyptians and tell them of the release of the captives. He says, dude, I can't talk very well. God says, I will be with your mouth. I don't know what your excuses are today. What about you? What brings fear into your life? If I were to say to you, with the small authority I have, that Jesus Christ tells you you are to make disciples of him, what would be your excuse? What brings fear into your life? You say, Ben, the unfamiliar settings are going to be very uncomfortable for me. Leaving the comforts of my home, talking with people that I don't know very well, maybe even worse, talking with people that I do know. That's going to be terrible. Right? What are your excuses? Moving from one school to another, the expansive, dark, mysterious, unknown often keeps us from carrying out Jesus' command. What if God was really with you? As the worship team kind of makes their way up this morning and we carry out worship, what half that crowd did that day. What if God was really with you? I know it, I get it. I don't think you do. What if the comfort of the Almighty followed you everywhere you went? Is there anything unknown to him? No, you say, Ben, I don't know what will happen when I share my faith. I don't know. God already does, and he's with you. Is anything unfamiliar to him? No. He says, I will be with you always. You've never had a moment, you've never had a moment in your life where God wasn't with you. His promise stands in the classroom, in the workplace, at home, in the city, in the country, in the prison cell, 
in the familiar places, in the unfamiliar places, your God is with you. And he holds all authority. And he says that he loves you with an everlasting love. And he says, I'm never going to leave you on your own. You don't have to figure this out all by yourself. He is a good God and he's gracious. Amen, church? He's tasked us with making disciples. We've figured out the world's discipleship program and it's pretty effective. It works really well. We will engage ourselves in following him, the one who purchased us with his own blood, amen? Let's pray as we wrap up this morning. Lord Jesus Christ, started this worship service by singing praise to you. How appropriate. That some have already come to you in repentance and faith and placed their faith and trust in you. And we love it. We rejoice. They'd have now be called saints. Sons and daughters. Lord Jesus, if there's anyone who hasn't done that yet, and they say, I am following other authorities. Other people have more influence over my life than the one who created me. If there's anyone here today that is still in that spot, I would, I would beg you to listen to the Holy Spirit of God. Repent and turn from your sin. Place your faith and trust in Christ who beckons you even in your unbelief to come. Lord Jesus, for the rest of us, would we be found faithful? Help us, Lord. Help us. We love you, Jesus, and we love that you've brought us into a community that will show us what it looks like to be found faithful, to follow you in the highs and follow you in the lows, and we will worship you the same. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. Again, if you'd like more information about Emmanuel Kenosha Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church. Also, we'd love it if you'd connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at kenosha.church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Emmanuel, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus. Thanks for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week on the Emmanuel Kenosha Church Podcast.